How many of y'all are awake this morning? Raise your hand. Do this right here if you're awake. If you're not awake, do this. All right, the first service is about 50-50. All right, y'all can be seated. He triumphs even over your sleeplessness. Um, And y'all are the late service. So he also triumphs in the area that we have been talking about now since the first of the year. Working on the topic of margin, not exactly something that we're really good at, that we need God's strength and power in. But we've been talking about trying to make space for what matters most in life, what really is significant. Now, we could make a list of what's most important, but when we look at our calendar, when we look at our money spent, when we look at so many other indicators of our life, I question sometimes with what we're saying if the audio is matching up with the video. The audio says this, the video says something else. And nobody likes to watch a movie like that. And so I wonder sometimes if we're missing it. Um, one of those areas is obviously time, money. There's so, so many areas of our that we need to create space in. There is a great uh, poem by Ralph Waldo Emerson who said this, Guard well your spare moments. I would say this, any moments. Guard well any moments. They are like uncut diamonds. Discard them and their value will never be known. You can take time, you can take life, and you can just discard it, waste it, live it, and have nothing to show for it. Or you can treat it, improve them, They are, uh, and they will become the brightest gems in a useful life. I want a useful life. I want my life to count. I want the gems of my life, those rough, uncut stones called time, to really value, to really have value in life, to really mean something and make something of life. I think Psalms and David and his writing, he probably influenced David, Solomon a lot. Here's one, actually, that has been around for a long time. Moses wrote this psalm, Psalm 90, verse 12. It says, teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. So there's a purpose to that. Let's not just look at life and say, you know, life's short, but what can I learn? What wisdom can I download? How can I reorder my life so that I'm making the most of the time that I have in the life that God gives me because I have no control over its final end? I I guess I can take control in my own hands, but by and large, we have no control over that. Here's a life principle for you that I want you to just kind of let it marinate in your soul today, and that is God wants your life to be full and fulfilled. Full, we have no problem with. We got that mastered. We got full calendars. We've spent all of our money. We've got little time. We've got, there's so many things in our life that it, our margin, it, we are marginless around the papers and the corners of our life. We filled it all up, okay? We have a full life, but do we have a fulfilled life? And you're going to realize that God wants us to have not only a full life, however long, whether that's 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, We have no control of that, but let it be a full life, but let it also be a fulfilled life. That we can really speak into. That we can reorder. That we can influence. That 
we can get on the same page with God on and get our lives in this proper order. It's what God's plan for us has been in the beginning. We know John 10, John 10, 10, great verses. I came so that everyone, Jesus said, would have life and have it at its fullest. What I say, God wants us not only to have a full life, but a fulfilled life. Some translation says abundant life. I want not only to have life, but to have the life at its fullest potential. Psalm 16, verse 11. Love this psalm. In your presence, in God's presence, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Let that be the verse you memorize this week if you don't have a verse to memorize. In God's presence, there is pleasure. That literally God is not some cosmic killjoy setting up in heaven trying to zap all the fun out of our life. That literally God wants us to have a pleasure-filled life, but he wants us to do it with a fullness of joy. Now, fullness of joy is different than a fullness of happiness. We know this. You're not first graders here. Happiness and joy are not the same thing. We buy happiness. We have happen. happiness happen to us. It, it, it's circumstances of life. Joy is something that's sustainable, that's reproducible, that stays with you, that's dense in quality. It's not fluffy air. It has something to it. It has something lasting. And in His presence is fullness of joy. James chapter 1, and we're jumping all over the Bible. James chapter 1, the half-brother of Jesus, said it like this. Every good thing given and every perfect, or in the Amplified Version, it says every full gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Here we have verses after verses pointing to this continuous thought. There is fullness of joy. There is full complete, densely packaged joy and presence of Him, even in His giftedness, even in His awareness, even in His presence in our life. When you look at Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, um, he was a bishop in, in, in Smyrna or modern-day Izmir, and uh, he was one of the early church fathers that kind of helped maintain the doctrinal integrity of the church uh, whenever there was a lot of heresy beginning to slip into the church. It was Irenaeus that kind of rallied around the, the central teachings of the early apostles. And this is in the second century BC, but or AD. He said this, he said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. God wants us not only to have a full life, but he wants us to have a fulfilled life. What does that mean? What's that look like? Again, don't measure it by how full your calendar is. Don't measure it by how big your bank account is. Don't measure it by how many degrees you have. Don't measure it by how many children you have in the home. Don't measure it by that. Measure it by something deeper inside of you in your relationship with God. If you are fully alive, and again, there's some subjectivity to this, but if you're fully alive, then you will know it. And there won't be this madness of pursuit that I can never quite get there. I'm always chasing and never catching. I'm always looking but never finding. It's what what Ecclesiastes so many times is talking about again and again. Again, you almost get depressed when you read Ecclesiastes. 
Because about 36 different times in 12 chapters, he uses this one word, vanity, and nine times out of ten, he's referring to the quality of people's lives. Not the quantity, that's the full. The fulfillment of life. It's vain. I mean, here's a man who made a billion dollars a year in gold alone. But when he comes back and he summarizes life, he says, life in itself, it's vain. It's empty. It's shallow. It's hollow. When you think about when when Solomon writes that, again, I think so many people don't want to read Solomon and his writing in Ecclesiastes because it has this almost depressing feel to it. Please hang on to it. Keep reading because you can't miss. Well, you don't want to miss it. Dan Allender said it about this, about the book of Ecclesiastes. It is thick, blood-red meat in a world that prefers more easily digested milk of simple solutions. We kind of like the simple, warm cup of milk, not the meaty stuff. When you get to Ecclesiastes, you're getting into some heavy stuff. But if you go on in Ecclesiastes and you're breaking it apart, you also notice a word that I've used several times in this series. It's the Hebrew word tov. It's used 72 different times in the Old Testament alone. 11 of those times, it's used in one chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's not in chapter 7, but it's not only in that chapter, it's in many other chapters. So you can see a predominant amount of the times that this Hebrew word tov is used is used in the book of Ecclesiastes. And where am I going with this? What's the Hebrew word tov mean? If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, our God uses the word, the writer of Genesis, Moses, uses the word tov to describe every day that God finished a day work, he said it was good. And that's just one translation of this word. Pleasant, beautiful, delightful, glad, joyful, precious, correct, righteous. So when you read Ecclesiastes, you can read and focus on the word vanity, but let that be a warning that a full life is not enough. A fulfilled life is what we're aiming for. A life of fulfillment, of joy, of good, that's pleasant, that's beautiful, that's delightful, that's glad, that's joyful, that's precious, that's correct. These are all the times the word is used, all the ways the word is used. Now, I wonder if you were to look at that screen right now and you were to count those words and you were to look at your life, how many of those words describe your life? What Solomon is doing is he's trying to turn our hearts towards away from the empty, shallow, vain existence of just more and more and more and more and more. He's trying to turn us to a good, pleasant, beautiful, delightful, glad, joyful, precious, correct, righteous kind of life. That's the life he's trying to point us to. In fact, one of the times he uses that word is in the chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 15, he says, I recommend having fun. Now, I like this verse already. He had me at fun. Because there's nothing better. There it is. For people in the world than to eat, drink, and enjoy life. Sounds almost hedonistic, doesn't it? Just go out there. Man, it's fatalistic. It's like, just go out there, man. You got to eat, drink, and... Is that exactly where he's going? No, you've got to understand the whole book in its context because if you look at it like that, you could easily jump into that I'm just supposed to be a hedonistic little sucker. And just take from this world. It's not why he's going with it at all. He's trying to balance the two. So here's what I want you to hear. God wants you to have a full and a fulfilled life. 
What does that look like? Look at chapter 9. Chapter 9 is where we're going to focus our attention today. And I have read these verses to you. I, in fact, I've not read all these verses to you. I've read some of these verses. I've read, I've read um, other passages that will sound very similar than the one that we just read in chapter 8, Eat, Drink, and Be Merry. Because why, why do I say that? Because no less than seven times in 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes will he give us the same challenge to eat, drink, and be merry, to enjoy life, to get in there and make the most and get the most out of life. So it is okay, (laughs) I'm giving you okay to go out and enjoy life. That's what our Father wants for us. Let's look at the passage again that will sound familiar to some of the others that we've read. Verse 7, chapter 9, go, eat your bread. With joy. Now notice the number of times he's going to emphasize a sense of joy and happiness and fulfillment. You can circle them if you want. And drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already, past tense, already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white with oil. Be, and, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, let me just compare and contrast that. When you talk about the designer fashion wear of first or 400 BC time period, when you talk about that, you're not talking about 21st century America. If you wore white, and it was white and not dungy, dingy white, That meant that you were probably pretty well off. And then if you had expensive cologne on, or as he says, oil lacking from your head, then you probably were doing pretty well in life. Because the opposite of that, at the other extreme, is wearing sackcloth and ashes. And you read that as as a sign of mourning and a sign of death and a sign of, of disgust and different things like that. But here's he's not telling us to put on sackcloth and ashes. He's telling us to put on the white robes. He's telling us to anoint our heads with expensive oils. Now look at this, verse 9. Now in my Bible, I did this on my own. I write off the corner. A Latin phrase that you will know and I will know. You've heard it in movies. You've heard it, read it, whatever. I wrote carpe diem. It's a Latin phrase for seize the day. Because I think this is Solomon's Latin, or excuse me, Hebrew expression, seize the day. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. That's that's what God plans for you. God planned for you to be in a love relationship with a spouse for life. That is his plan, his portion for you and his plans. In your toil and at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. I want you to hear today a permission granted to enjoy life, to enjoy life to its 
fullest. It was God's intent for you to enjoy life to its fullest. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Because some of this is going to seem kind of countercultural to what you maybe experienced in church before. Because in church before, we kind of cast off a vision sometimes or an image of that God is out there and he does not want you to enjoy life. That is not intentional. Please don't let me ever communicate that. Because what he's saying here is God is wanting you to, to, to enjoy life. He's wanting to get you to the better tove kind of life, the pleasant life, the righteous life, the correct life, and you will find greater joy in that. So let's give you the recipe for a good life today. All right, from what Solomon said here, one recipe item that you're going to need is you're going to need to enjoy the stuff that God has given you to enjoy. Yes, you can enjoy the stuff you've collected, all right? It's okay. Now, here's the problem. I enjoy the stuff that I have, but I dream about enjoying the stuff that I don't have. And when my dream about the stuff that I don't have becomes greater than enjoying the stuff that I do have, I've got a problem. It's not that I don't have everything that I want. I've got a problem that I can't find contentment in what I have. You get what I'm saying? We're the richest mar- we're the richest country in the world. We have more debt than we owe more than we own in our culture. Now go figure that one for me. How is it that we can be one of the wealthiest nations in the world but yet we owe more than we own? Because we keep chasing the madness that more on the other side of what I have is going to make me happier than what I am right now. That is chasing a mirage. Paul, great man, grew up probably in a wealthy home, a highly educated man, grew up in the city of Tarsus. Tarsus was considered an Ivy League city, probably second education only to Alexandria, Egypt of that day. I've literally heard it called an Ivy League school town. That's where Saul grew up in as a child growing up, educated as a child growing up, having a pedigree, having a resume that would impress any Jewish in the first century, any Jewish individual in the first century. And yet, after having all of this accomplishment, after having all of this success, after climbing in leadership, he had to learn something along the way. And he talks about what he learned along the way. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 says, Not that I have ever, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content. And whatever I have, I know how to live on almost nothing or everything. I have learned the secret of living in, in every situation whether it is with full stomach or an empty stomach, with plenty or little. What Paul is, I mean, what's, you know, Paul is saying here is, I have learned to be content. You don't get the spiritual gift of contentment. You don't grow in contentment. You learn contentment through your spiritual journey. And I think what Solomon has learned in all of his accomplishments and wealth is he is learning to be content. Look at verse, uh, look at verse um, 7 again. Go and eat the bread with joy. Go and eat your bread with joy, not the bread the bank owns. And drink your wine with a merry heart. 
Not your friend's wine, your wine. So again, he's giving us permission to enjoy, as it says in verse 9, the portion of life that God has given you. So if you have a boat, don't feel bad about having a boat. Just invite me to go to the lake with you. That's the point. Okay, it's getting that time of year, hopefully one of these days. If you go on a nice vacation, go on a nice vacation and enjoy the nice vacation. If you have a nice home, have a nice home. No problem with that. And I'll go on a vacation. Lori and I just got back from a vacation. You know what the best thing about that vacation was? Is that we came back debt-free. We paid cash for everything along the way. You talk about enjoying a vacation on the vacation and after the vacation, that's a beautiful thing. So go and enjoy what you have. Enjoy caviar if you like eating fish eggs. Eat all mine. I don't care. He doesn't care. It's just whatever God has given you, you have full right to enjoy it. Here's some verses. I want you to see this reinforced, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Read these with me. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Read it with me. God richly gives us everything to... Ecclesiastes 3.13. The people eat and drink, read it with me, and enjoy the fruits of their labor. For these are the gifts from God. Now notice this. You work, but God grants the gifts. How closely do you tie your work to God's giving? That would be a revolutionary frame of reference. That God allowed me to have the job that I have, the income that I have, the resources that I have. Even though, yes, it's my skill and, yes, I'm working hard for it, it's a gift from God. And if you've ever walked into the office and they handed you a pink slip and you get a box to take your stuff home in, you know real quickly what it's like to realize that your skills didn't get you far enough. 1 Timothy chapter 4, read it with me. For everything created by God is good. Nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So again, our perspective needs to be, God has given it to me. God has granted it to me. God has, I, know, I want to enjoy it. And again, he said, eat. Got to keep it in balance though. In our culture, we've eaten until we're obese. That's not healthy. Drink. Drink's fine. Drink until you're drunk. That's not fine. Again, we kind of got to keep this pendulum swing or we got to keep the the tension on the rope because there is an okay and there is not an okay. So in in some of these, I'm going to give you my McDaniel guidelines, okay? These are my guidelines. You write your own guidelines, but this is what I've learned in my years on on the planet Earth. Uh, And so here's my guidelines to enjoying stuff, okay? Jot them down if you want. Start with generosity. Start with generosity. So I do my giving and then I do my living. I don't do my living and then find a little bit to give. I want to get my giving in front of my living because I want to realize and acknowledge that in all my life, everything that I have, I only have because God has given me either the skills, the people, the network, the talents, to whatever it may be, that he's given that to me, and I want to acknowledge him on the front end, straight off the top. And I've said it here, I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. God always deserves our first and our best. And if I'm not giving him my first and I'm not giving him my best, then there's a disconnect there. 
And we just got to reconcile that with Scripture, not in our own reasoning. Start with generosity. Number two, act your wage. Did you hear that? Act your wage. We live in a dangerous culture whenever we are literally $400 away. The average American is $400 away from going bankrupt. And again, one of the wealthiest cultures in the world. Prosperity, Dave Ramsey said, is having the money to do God's will in your life. You're filthy rich at that point when you're able to do God's will with the resources he's given you. Here's number three. They're quick. Keep it in your hands and not in your heart. We went to the mission field a few years ago, lived in Africa, and it was in the late 90s, and we were packing up our contents into containers to be put on a ship to be sent to Africa. And we said, what can we take? They said, take anything you want. But just realize that you may have to evacuate in the middle of the night and leave everything behind. Then they quoted from the president of the Foreign Mission Board, who five decades prior to that, Baker James Cawthon was the president, and he was a missionary to China, and he made this statement to the missionaries then, and they're still telling it five decades later. Whenever you go, take anything you want, but take it in your hands and not in your heart. And Too many times what we have is tied to our heart. So keep it far away from the heart. Number two. Enjoy your stuff. You have complete biblical rights to enjoy it. Number two, enjoy the person that God has given you to love. Enjoy the person that God has given you to love. Notice when he said his carpe diem statement. It was in verse 9. He didn't just say, hey, enjoy life, period, exclamation point, walk away from it. He gives us direction on how and to whom we enjoy life with. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. There's two key phrases there. Love and joy. If you need to circle them, circle them. Say, Mike, I know I need to enjoy the person I love, but what if I don't enjoy them? I get it. That's honesty. That's authenticity. And you need to be able to say that. But some of us have confused enjoying life with the woman that God has given us or the man that God has given us. We've confused the two to say that if I'm not enjoying them, I must not be loving them. And we think that love and enjoyment are the same thing, but love is not an emotion. It is a commitment, and it's always been. Read 1 Corinthians 13. There's very little emotion in that. It's a commitment that I make to the person that I love. I'm going to love you, and because I love you, I will learn to enjoy you. Now, in the dating process, we typically enjoy them, and then we grow into some kind of love for them. And we get confused when the enjoyment fades off, maybe three years, four years, five years, ten years. I don't know how long it happens. But when it happens, we kind of forget that, hey, love is the commitment. Love is the bedrock. Commitment is what I am. Enjoyment is what I feel. 
Now, if I am committed and I'm committed to loving you, I can find joy in loving you. Here's the McDaniels, Mike's, not Lori's. Let her write her own. Um, Recipe, I guess, for loving your spouse. Speak their love language. That's not new to a lot of you. You've heard of love languages. There's a book out there. I have young couples where when I do their ceremonies, I have them read Gary Chapman's Five Love Languages. We've had Gary Chapman here live and tell, talk about the five love languages. It's an incredible thought process to think of. And I've seen it on a global basis that, Lily, these are the love languages of, of most people. I mean, again, cross-culturally, it seems to be there that if you give people words of affirmation, that really is what thrives them, that really builds them, it really makes them feel loved, then they fill their love tank. Physical touch or quality time or receiving gifts or acts of service. Now here's the problem, is that when you get married, as for the first 10 years of Lori and I is married, I loved Lori with my love language and got frustrated when she didn't love me with my love language. But see, the onus is upon me to love her. That's what I'm told in Ephesians 5 to do, to love her. I need to love her with her love language. Now, her love language is not my love language. Hers is words of affirmation. If you're in Mike McDaniel's circle at all, you know that words of affirmation don't flow from me. It's true. It does not come very easy. I have to work at it. I have to be conscious about it. I have to, but that's her love language. So what I have to do is I have to learn to love her with her love language. It's a second language for me. I have a hard enough time with my own language, but I have my language. She has her language. What I have to do, and you would think after 27 years of marriage that I would be able to speak fluent words of affirmation. 28 years, that's right. It only seems like 27. Uh, Words of affirmation. I'm a quick learner. Slow at applying, but I'm quick at learning. There's also another thing. I need to listen to your heart. I, I speak her love language, but I listen to my heart. Well, Mike, I need you to listen to her heart. No, I need to listen to my heart because I need to listen to the voices that are going on in my heart. Because some of the voices in my heart are absolute, blatant lies from the pit of hell. And I need to call it out. I need to speak it out. That is a lie. I'm not going to listen to that. And we will listen to the lies of our own head and our own heart. And we will begin to believe the lies. And we go from being selfless to self-interested. And it becomes about us. You think about Solomon. When he loved his wife, we're going to hopefully, prayerfully, if you'll pray, pray me into it, we're going to read Song of Solomon and, and share a message series through Song of Solomon in the fall. I'm a little bit scared, to be honest with you. It's, it's beautiful, but it's hard, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's erotic at times. It's, it's, it's out there, but it's, 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 it's guideline for us. And, and Solomon had this tremendous love for his first wife. But 
Then 1 Kings 11, 1 and 2 come along and tell us what happened in history. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. For surely they will turn your heart after their gods. And that's exactly what happened. He ended up loving many women. Song of Solomon, listen to the the way he describes love. This is the way I want love to be described in my love for Lori. Is love as strong as death. You can't kill it. We are together till death us do part. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. I am jealous over her love for me and and she rightfully over my love for her. It flashes with the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. I want my love to originate from the very throne room of God. I want my marriage to be empowered and flamed in passion by the very presence of God in it. Why do I say you enjoy the wife that God has given you, the husband that God has given you? Why do you do that? Because it's a gift from God. Proverbs 18, 22. The man, fi- the man who finds a wife finds a treasure. And he receives favor from the Lord. Do you treat your spouse as pure gold or fool's gold? See, marriages are made in heaven, but they're maintained here on earth. We've got to work at them. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have back with us the Davises for Marriage Enrichment Week. We do this every year. We've done marriage-free marriage enrichment times for our family and our church because this is why I realize that it doesn't matter if we did it every six months or every quarter. We're always needing to fine-tune our marriages. You're going to hear from a couple who literally let their marriage dissolve but how God restores it. Thank you, Grace Point, because you give financially. We can do this for free for our entire community. Be a part of it. Number three, enjoy the stuff you have. Enjoy the the wife that God gives you, but uh, the spouse that God gives you. Number three, enjoy your work with excellence. Enjoy your work with excellence. He's talking back in the, 4th century B.C., and he's talking to something that we need to, to hear in the 21st century. we got to realize that when, when Jesus walked this earth, do you realize 132 times he had public appearances? Listen to this. This is incredibly important. 132 times he had public appearances. 122 times those took place in the workplace. 122 times. What am I telling you? Where Jesus lived, where Jesus lived, worked, learned, and played, he lived out his faith. He shared and showed Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. He is in people's lives. It's not just about where, uh, it's not just about going to church. It's about that when I'm on the job, that literally I can make worship, not of my job, but I can make worship in my job. I can give my job to God as an act of worship. Excellence honors God and inspires people is a phrase I've heard a lot. 
And I like to remind myself of it, Mike. Am I giving God excellence? Am I giving everything? Because if I do that, then it will bring honor to God, but it will inspire others. Look at verse 10. Whatever your hand, if you're writing a term paper, students, if you're preparing a document for work, if you're on an Excel spreadsheet, whatever you do, whatever your hand finds itself to do, do it with your might. Do it with all your might. Leave nothing. Give it all out. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 says, Whatever you do in work, add it with all of your heart. Enjoy your stuff that God gives you to enjoy. Not what you don't have. Give and enjoy what He gives you. Enjoy the spouse that God gives you. It's a treasure from God. Enjoy the work that God gives you. Enjoy life. Listen, number four. Enjoy life in the full view of God. Realizing that He is watching me. Not in, again, this cosmic killjoy kind of way. Not in this mean ogre kind of way. But the God of the universe loves you like a child calls you his child, he's watching you, he's wanting to see your life being lived well, making good decisions, walking with him. Those of you who are being baptized in this gathering, if you'll right now get up and follow the band, they're going to be going out through that door right there, head that way. Because these are going to be some of those who are making decisions or have made decisions to follow Jesus. And we want to affirm them today as followers of Christ and as declaring their faith. Because they're making the statement, I want to live my life in the full view of God. And maybe you're here today and you realize you've never declared your faith in Jesus I challenge you, go home wet. We got a t-shirt in the back. That's all we can give you. And a towel, maybe. Um, maybe used towel, but it'll be a towel. Uh, declare your faith. Go home wet. That's a challenge that we give from time to time. I want to live my life with God in the full view. Enjoy that experience. Look what it said in the first part of this passage that we read, verse 7. For God has already approved what you do. Past tense, perfect. God has already approved it. God's looking at your life. He's looking at my life. And he's wanting us to make good decisions. He's, he's, he's wanting us to live for an audience of one. Because when we live well here, it brings pleasure to him. That brings pleasure to us He finds joy in our joy. He finds fulfillment in our fulfillment. I like the way the message puts it. God takes pleasure in your pleasures. A life of obedience to Christ brings pleasure to me and pleasure to God. Like a a parent with a child, listen to the words of John. He said, I have no greater joy, John 3, 4. I have no greater joy than, than to hear of my children walking in the truth. You know what, you want to make your parents proud? Make good decisions. You don't have to be the smartest kid in the class. You don't have to get the biggest scholarship. 
Your parents would be happy about that. But live in the truth. You want to break your parents' heart? Walk away from the truth. Yet they seek me daily, it says in Isaiah 58, verse 2. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. Psalm 112, verse 1. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. See, I find pleasure in God. God finds pleasure in me. I live with view of him. He lives with the view of me. I live with him in the front window screen of my life. I want to live that way. I want to enjoy that life. I don't want to see him as, as this mean God out there trying to take from me. But he's a, he's a pleasant, beautiful, awesome, holy God who's wanting the very best for me. And I want to live in full view of that. Lori and I, I have an app on my phone. Lori and I celebrated a big anniversary back in May. It was uh, our 10,000 days of marriage. All right? Now, for those of you who do math real quick in your head, that's 27 years and some change, depending on some leap years in there. And the only reason I know that is because a year ago, I have an app on my phone that counts up and counts down. And I just happened to be in March this time last year getting into that app because I was getting ready to go on a trip to Turkey and, and so forth. And I was counting down the days. But it also, I looked back and we were like 9,000 and some days of being married. I'm thinking, we're coming up on 10,000 days. What can I do for 10,000 days of marriage? Because the way I see it, is you can't celebrate the years unless you make the most of the days. And so I um, planned this date. I told her we're having an anniversary date. And she said, what anniversary is it? It's the middle of May. We got married in December. We started dating in April. What, what anniversary is it? She could figure it out. I loved it. And so we went on this date, and, uh, and we planned this trip that we just got back from. The one that I said we paid cash for on the way. We went to one of our bucket list places, and we went to the Alps in Switzerland. And we got a place, about about every place, you get a view of this one particular mountain that jets out on top of the Alps called the Matterhorn. It rises up above all the other Alps. And the Alps alone are big, 14,692 feet. Three to four people try to scale it every year and die. It's almost a perfect symmetrical pyramid in the ground. It's the mythology is that God was walking through the Alps and his, his, his cane, his walking cane got stuck in the mountain and it broke off. And this is the, the top of his walking stick. So again, there's legends, there's all this kind of stuff about this mountain. And the thing is, is wherever you are in this valley, the Zermatt Valley, wherever you are uh, you know, over in Italy, wherever you are in any part, we're, we're miles from this mountain when I took this photo. And you still see the Matterhorn. You can't hide from the Matterhorn. It's there. It's always there. It's big. It's, it's mighty. It's beautiful. And it's breathtaking. And you don't want to hide from it. You want to watch it. It creates its own atmosphere, literally. Clouds form around the mountain. It's, it's, it's beautiful. The only time you can hide from the Matterhorn is to hide behind another mountain. 
And it can be an ugly, shrubby mountain. But if you get low enough and you get in the right angle, you won't see the Matterhorn anymore when another mountain comes in view. I want to live in full view of the majestic, powerful, beautiful mountain. And I want the God of the universe to be looking at me and approving my life. And that will bring not only a full life, but a fulfilled life. Would you bow your heads with me? To ask you the question, are you living a full life is a ridiculous question to ask. My question for you is are you living a fulfilled life? Where have you gotten off track if you're not on track? I want to pray. And we're going to see some stories of God's stories of people that are saying, I want God in the full view of my life. And I want to acknowledge Him today. And we're going to celebrate their story, but do you have a story to be told? If you're ready to give your life to Christ right here where you're at, to Jesus, I need you. I need you to be in the full screen, the full view of my life. I want you, Jesus, there. Maybe you're off hiding behind some shrubby hill. Don't miss the beauty, the majesty, the power of God. Father God, would you do a work in us that we would not be satisfied with a full life, content with a vain existence, but give us a tove a better, a good, a pleasant, a beautiful, a righteous life in you. And we acknowledge you, Lord, as the one who rewrites the stories and is rewriting our story right now. In Jesus' name, amen.